worship service together. We're thankful to have uh, Mr. and Mrs. Gaskill with us. John will be bringing the word, uh, preaching the word to us this morning, so we're thankful to have them with us. In uh, the absence of our pastor, uh, the last word uh, I had from Calvin was that there was no change in Sybil uh, overnight. They're waiting on God who gives life and who takes it away. And so be in prayer for them as well. He said to pass along his thanks to you uh, for your prayers. They're very grateful for that. Um, for By way of announcement uh, this morning, uh, the usual uh, things, we'll have an afternoon uh, service this afternoon, and that will be just uh, the consideration of the Proverbs. There will be no preaching uh, service, just worship and uh, some reading and a few comments. Be sure to join us on Wednesday on Zoom at 7 o'clock. And then uh, you can read the other announcements there regarding uh, the back-to-back. And the birth of our new grandson has been announced. I think everyone's probably heard that now. Granddaughter, excuse me. <laughs> Is that a Freudian slip or what? Anyway, no, I'm tickled to death. <laughs> the, the, girls, girls love grandpa a, a lot uh, easier than the boys do. But uh, so, uh, with that in mind, let us turn now to turn our thoughts now uh, to God. There's a good devotional here in the uh, bulletin. I don't know if you've read it yet, uh, from James uh, regarding. Uh, the command to draw near to God, but the motivation is because he will draw near to you. And our drawing near to God must come first. <laughs> he points that out. We cannot, we cannot drift into it any more than we can drift into holiness. That's a wonderful uh, exhortation as we come to worship. We have to have our minds engaged in seeking uh, God with uh, all of our heart. So if you would, please stand and we will read together uh, Psalm 73. Verses 25 through 28. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. Amen. With that, let us turn to the in the hymns of grace to number one hundred and twenty six. Behold our God.
Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you that we can meet here freely today. May you help us to have listening ears as a word is brought forth. And uh, may we not forget the things of your word as we leave this place, but we may we live it out through our daily lives through the week. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, turn in your Trinity hymnal to number 403. 403, not what my hands have done.
Mark chapter 2. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there were there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they made an opening, they let him down. The, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and when, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do, do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and worse, and a worse tear is made. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we confess before you this day that we are blessed people. You have been very good to us. 
You have granted us the faith that we need so that we can believe upon you, that our sins may be forgiven. We pray today that if there is anyone in this place who has not experienced the forgiveness of sins, that you would grant them that faith and draw them on to you. We also thank you this day for the testimony of our sister Sybil and the life that she has lived in uh, godly faithfulness to you. We pray that your hand would be upon her at this moment and that you would bring her to you when it is your time. We thank you that this day, uh, on such a short notice, Pastor Gaskell um, would come and deliver the message. Open our ears to hear from your words this day, and may it do us good. Draw us onto you, and, and bless him and strengthen him as he comes again and stands before us. Uh, Walk among us and minister unto us, Lord Jesus. We confess our need of you, and we anticipate uh, what you will be do on our behalf once again. In Jesus' blessed name, amen. Before Pastor Gaskell comes to minister the word to us, please turn in your trinities to number 574. 574. Excuse me. <laughs> I changed it to 573 and I didn't, uh, I'm reading the email from Calvin. 573, I'm sorry. Thank you. <laughs> Shall we stand as we sing?
seated. Pastor Gaskell, if you would come, please. appreciate the concern. I had several people express gratitude that on such short notice I should be able to put a sermon together and come and preach. I don't know whether that was a concern for you or for me, but I will take it in the latter sense and express appreciation for your concerns. But uh, I, I have been preaching for a little over 50 years now, uh, 30 of them as a pastor, and thus uh, about 100 sermons a, a week, I mean a year for uh, those years. So I have something to fall back on from time to time. But it was made easy this time because it had been one of those things that I had been considering during the course of the week. I don't know about you, but there are times when Paul in Romans 7 and his experience uh, comes very personally to me. You'll remember in that chapter that he, he speaks to that problem of wanting to do what is good and yet failing to do it. He struggled even as a Christian with the desire to do what was right. And yet he found himself time and again uh, finding that he just wasn't doing that right. That kind of thing gets us to thinking about something I think that is very important in the Christian's life. And that is what does it mean to be repentant? Uh, That is not just something for unbelievers. We call them to repentance. Come, accept Christ as Lord, and then we're finished with that repentance stuff. Um, If you examine your life on a regular basis, you will realize it is a daily need in the life of a Christian, though perhaps sometimes there are particular moments in in your way that you find it um, more more needful. And so a passage of Scripture that I'm sure is very familiar to you, Psalm 51, Uh, I uh, preached on this about 20 years ago. Uh, at my church, it took me three weeks to get through it. I, don't worry, we're not going to be here that long. But I wanted to hit some of the highlights of what it meant for David and for us to recognize when the Spirit comes and works convictingly in our lives so that our sin becomes uh, that which seems like it's always before us. What what exactly is it that we are expected by our Lord to do? David offers, I believe, a a very good example of that kind of time in our lives. And so I want to uh, read through the passage, but I'm going to do do it in sections. uh, And then we will hear after God's word is read each time uh, that which... I hope helps you to understand what David was going through and thus uh, that, that way that is set before us when the Spirit convicts us of our sin. Beginning with that 
just the first two verses, something of, a, of an introduction as to the thoughts of it. David writes, Be gracious to me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the greatness of thy compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Before we begin, let us bow in prayer. Our gracious Father, we pray that you would give us ears to hear. There are things that, as your children, we need constant reminder of, and this is one of them, for our hearts are not yet that, do not yet have that purity of mind that we expect when we reach that place where we will see you face to face. Until that day, let us learn that while sin may be in our lives, there is the grace provided for us through Jesus Christ our Lord that enables us to find purity of heart once more. May we hear you as you speak. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. David, when he comes to his senses, and I'm sure you remember how that happened. Uh, prophet comes to him, tells a brief little story to kind of intrigue David. It angers David as to what had happened, that one sheep taken from a man when the guy who took it had many sheep. David is just angered at the injustice until Nathan's finger points at him and says, you're the one I'm talking about. We can sense that it is in that moment David finally allows that light that he knew was there to break through. He couldn't help it anymore. God spoke directly through his prophet. And so David is brought to that, that place of seeking God's blessing of forgiveness. And he asked for it with a measure that only we as Christians can fully understand, and even we probably not as fully as we should, he asked that it be given to him, that, that purity of heart and mind, that forgiveness of sins, in accordance with God's perfect love for us, in accordance with God's grace. David doesn't try to defend himself. David doesn't point to all the things that he's done for Israel and how faithful he's been to God down through the years. He simply ex accepts that he is a man who needs God's, well, God's undeserved grace towards sinners. He doesn't want just mercy. He wants mercy, as you see it spelled out there, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of, of your compassion. That, that is what we all need. We don't need a little bit of it. We don't need just a tad of mercy. We need the kind of mercy that has its source and a love that never fails. We need the kind of mercy that comes to us through the kindness of one who binds himself in a covenant that cannot be broken, a, a covenant that was sealed with the blood of Jesus Christ. That is the one that we come to. And thus we know for a certainty that our sin can be blotted out because that grace comes to us according to, as one translation has it, the multitude of your mercies. That is what we need. 
David's need was great, for his transgressions were many. It wasn't limited just to what he had done with Uriah and with Bathsheba. It was revealed to him in those moments that his sins were in need of great grace because his sins were great. Great not just in that they were perhaps some of those sins that we think are the worst, but great in the fact that there were so many of them. Because you see, it wasn't just that, that, that one event in his life. He, he needed God's mercy as one who, well, as one who was stained thoroughly down to the core of who he was with that, that sin in his life that kept him away from fellowship with God. He didn't want God simply to avert his eyes. He says, I want those things gone. My transgressions blotted out for now and forever. David, in other words, is asking for God to do what David could not possibly attain. David desired a cleansing that even if he went to the temple a thousand times and found that that hyssop being sprinkling water over him for cleansing. I could do it a thousand times and it wouldn't matter, God. You need to take care of this problem in my life. You see, the hypocrite is content if his sin is hidden from other people. That's good for him. Everybody still thinks I'm a good guy. David says, it's not enough for me. Even if people did think well of me despite my sin, What you think, God, is most important to me. It is at that point that David comes to confess the sin that he has committed. There in verses 3 through 5 we read, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. You only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin. My mother conceived me. David found his sin not just to be something that bothered him a little bit. It was oppressive. Every day as he woke up, there it was again. Look at what you did. One of your faithful soldiers, one of those who fought for the kingdom that you're ruler over, you had him murdered. And then, and then... I took his wife. I took his wife even before the murder and, and committed adultery with her. This is, this is the, the thing that David woke up to on a regular basis, but it wasn't until Nathan came and spoke to him of that sin that he knew it was time to do something about it. His plea for mercy is not exaggerated. When we confess to God our sins, that's, that's not an exaggeration. When we say to ourselves... Before our Lord, I am a sinner through and through. It's the truth. It is who we are. Because again, even as Christians, there is that fight, that struggle with the old man that lies within us that we need to constantly tend to. Confession agrees that God's law rightly condemns us. We own our sin with the shame that it brings. We stop and we look at our our hearts and we recognize that it is a shameful thing that we have done and we we declare with sorrow, God, I have sinned against you. I have sinned against you. His sins cast such a cloud over his soul that there was no 
relief from the burden anywhere that he could find. Now, as he registers that recognition of the condemnation that is justly deserved, he, he does so in the light of the fact that that sinfulness was not first and foremost against Uriah and against Bathsheba. The utter sinfulness and repugnance of sin lies in the fact that it's defiance against the one that we love, against the one that we say is Lord of our lives, Savior of our souls. David does not mean to say here, of course, that he did nothing wrong to Uriah or Bathsheba. Of course he had. And David would have recognized that. But what made it so bad was the fact that he took the life of one that was created in God's image. He looked at that institution of marriage that God had given to man so that he wouldn't be alone, and he defied it. He ruined and corrupted the foundations of that very God-given institution that he knew was a gift to mankind and to him in particular. What makes sin against a neighbor worthy of condemnation is ultimately that it is a violation of God's holiness, of God's character. We don't just sin when we lie to our neighbor. We sin against the one who says, I am not a liar. I tell the truth always. We sin against him who has given us life. And in sinning, we scorn the goodness and the justice of God's law, thereby dishonoring his holy name. And, it, and this recognition of the sinfulness, it again, goes deeper than just two acts that were very heinous, obviously. But it goes further than that because, as he tells us in the fifth verse, I was brought forth in iniquity. That, that defines me. That is who I am. I am one who was born in sin, who has lived a life uh, of sin myself, and then it has led me to this point where I am guilty of the worst of sins. The discovery of his sin opened David to a shocking view of himself. I, I am this kind of person. It wasn't just a sin here or there, but it was his very nature that was contaminated by sin itself. I think the last time I, I was here, I came into the Sunday school class, and that's what y'all were talking about, was the total depravity of mankind. Of course, it doesn't mean that we're all as bad as we could be, but it means that in every part of our life, our intellect, our emotions, our will, everything about us has been corrupted by sin, David recognized that when he says of himself that he was brought forth in iniquity. A sinner under the conviction of the Spirit of God will confess that nothing in him is good. When we come to God, that first moment that the Spirit calls us to life, grants us that life, the first thing that we recognize is that we have absolutely nothing we can offer him that is good. There is nothing good in us apart from what God does in us and how gracious he is thus to save sinners like ourselves. David goes on. It, it is not just a psalm about confession. It is about desire. What God do 
I want as a result of this recognition of who I am. Well, he doesn't want just to be forgiven. He doesn't just want a clean slate. He wants to be restored to that fellowship with God that he had known before. He missed it. You see, the unbeliever doesn't know what we miss when there is a cloud that comes between us and the smile of God. They just, well, you just, you know, your emotions, they come and go. That's the way life is. But no, we who have walked with the Lord, when we find his frown to be more real to us than his smile, it is something that we find hard to endure as it was for David. What David wanted above all else was not to have his desires fulfilled, but rather for God's will to be done in his life. He said, that's, that's what I need. You'll see that starting with the, the sixth verse. Let me read verses 6 through 12. Behold, you desire truth in my innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. David wanted God's will in his life. God wants from us more, more than simply outward conformity to his law. It is good. It is an excellent thing that we show up to gather with the people of God for worship on Sundays. The Lord's Day. To give ourselves to think his thoughts after him. It's a good thing to do. But you know good and well that there are people who come to church week after week, some of them, and gain nothing from it. Nothing changes. When we meet in worship of the holy God, there is something that ought to change about us every time we come together. I need Sundays. I sense it more acutely some Sundays than others, but I know I need Sundays because apart from them, there. There is, there is a lack in my life. There is something that is missing for me. God wants for us to have a sincere desire for practical righteousness. I want that truth to be inmost in me, David says. That's what God wants for us. He wants it to, to change who we are in our, in our own hearts so that truth, his truth, is more important than anything else. And that means when we need to discern the difference between right and wrong, please, please don't go to the newspapers looking for that. That's a lousy place to go. Go to God's Word. The world right now, I don't know if they're confused or they know what they're doing. I, I don't have a clue why they say some of the things that they say, but there is a lot of, there's a lot of lying going on out there, and we know that the father of lies is behind that. That is what he is. That is what he does. We need truth as God has revealed, uh, revealed it to us in his word. What every saved sinner knows is that he can't give what God wants from him. Righteousness. Truthfulness. 
He can't give that to God unless God first gives it to him. Don't commit yourself to reform. I'm going to change the way that I am. Commit yourself to God. He's the one who gives you that ability to live for him as you should. David longed for the reality of personal purity there in that seventh verse you see. A purity that was only faintly depicted in the ceremonial washings that he he mentions. It was not enough for David to have a priest sprinkle him. He says, again, I need the Lord to cleanse me. I, I need the one who made me to make me clean through and through. And you know, as I do, that there is only one way to that, and it is through the blood of Christ. It is in the blood of Christ that we find that washing administered by the Spirit of God that thoroughly cleanses us so that when God looks at us, well, he sees that righteous man he wants. David's sin was ever before him, but he was nevertheless convinced that God and God alone could remove it. And it is only at this point in his prayer that he finally comes to what most of us would want to start with. I need some comfort, God. You, you have burdened my heart with sin, and all we can think of is immediately moving to make me feel better, God. Please get rid of this blackness, this darkness in my heart and in my soul. But David reaches it in the eighth verse. You see, it is only when we have dealt with the matter of sin and guilt that we are ready to receive from God that comfort that says, My son, all is well between me and you. Sometimes when we are in the midst of our evangelistic endeavors, our attempt to share the gospel with others, we want to rush to that comfort part. We want to tell them that God has a wonderful plan for your life. But, but is that really the first thing that they need to hear? Not usually. The first thing that they need to hear is that they are sinners condemned justly by God to an eternity apart from his grace, his goodness, and his mercy. Because until they see their need for salvation, they're not going to be looking for a Savior They'll be looking for 10 steps to a better family or 12 steps to a a better life without the bad stuff that's there. But they're not going to be looking for a Savior. They're going to be looking for what they can do in order to improve their lives. We need people to recognize that their problem is not that they're not strong enough, but rather that they have no faith in the one who can give them what they need most. He longed for comfort. And thus he prays to God for it. When sin separates the sinner from God's gracious presence, that sinner wants to know that God still does love him. And and you know, I find that difficult to deal with sometimes. How can God love a sinner like me? But is that not part of our walk of faith? That we trust that God loves Flawed individuals like us, we, we, we want that gracious presence of God because there is nothing better than that. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Why so? So that I can enjoy once again that sweet fellowship that is mine through that, 
that atoning work of Christ at the cross and the faith that I put in the fact that his death truly did blot out my transgressions. Because you know, looking back at the Old Testament, the blood of bulls and goats never could do it. But the blood of Christ, once and for all, never has to be repeated through that death, blotted out our sins, and just as needful, imparted to us through imputation, is righteousness. Now when God looks at us, he sees that righteous man, that righteous woman, that he says is part of my family, belongs to me. The repentance center longs for what only the Creator can give, and that's why David says in that 10th verse, Create in me a clean heart, O God. It's the only way it comes. We don't, we don't need, again, a little bit of reform. We need a new creation. And we have found that in Christ. He has made us a new creation. He has made us so that as a child of God, it is not a temporary matter God gives us enough to get over to the next hump and then, all right, now, you're on your own for a while? Uh Uh-uh. He is constantly supplying that purity, that cleansing of our hearts that enables us to walk with him. That 11th verse, do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Well, you can see what was at the heart of David's concerns It wasn't the fact that his kingship was about to be overthrown. It wasn't power. It wasn't riches that that David feared losing. What he feared losing was the presence of God at work in his heart. The very thought of being driven from his presence. You remember that's how it was put for Cain's punishment. He was driven east out of the garden, away from the presence of God. And for the one who wrote a psalm, about the joys of simply being in the house of God to worship him, that was the worst thing David could think of. Don't drive me away from you. For the spirit to desert us and leave us to our own strength would certainly be our spiritual undoing. You cannot make it through this worship service as you ought to without the spirit of God at work in your heart and life. Those of us who have been born of the Spirit, and Romans 8 makes this very clear, those of us who have been born of the Spirit know that we must live by the Spirit, live by that grace that is offered through His living presence in our life in order to please God. That is it. There is, there is again, nothing that you can do on your own. It is only as the Spirit gives us strength and love for God that we can continue on. Again, note that the prayer for joy, verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. His heart had led him to murder Uriah and commit adultery with Bathsheba. Have any of you ever heard the counsel that is given What decision should I make in this specific instance? Well, you just need to follow your heart. Please, if you're a Christian, don't give anybody that advice. Your heart is desperately wicked, Jeremiah tells us. Don't do that. You tell them, 
to follow God's law. Why? So that they can get saved? No, we're saved by grace. But if you want to find the joy of salvation, keep first God's will in your heart. And then, then, what he allows, you do. What, what he gives you to do, you pursue with all your heart. That is what brings joy. Not getting everything that you want, but getting everything that God wants you to have. Because David had known salvation and its benefits, he realized how much he had lost, and he simply desires to know again that joy that enables him to come to the house of the Lord and sing with praise God's great grace. One of my favorite songs in, in the hymnal that we used was Grace Greater Than My Sin. Love that because it depicts for each of us exactly what is needed. As bad as our week may have been last week, it is a small thing compared to the greatness of God's grace. He can and he will forgive those who seek him through Christ Jesus as Lord. Then verses 13 through 19. Then I will teach transgressors your way. Sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, God. God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you... You do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I'd give it. You are not pleased with the burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices and burnt offering and whole burnt offering. The young bulls will be offered on your altar. With a renewed heart, you, do you see where David's mind instantly goes? I want to teach others the law of God. I want to let others know what this great God that has forgiven my sins can do for them. The, the help that he, he begins, again, is not with a line about the wonderful life God has planned for you. But he says, I want to teach you God's law. Why, why would he do that? Why does he begin with the law there? Well, he wants others, first of all, and you can tell it from the, the psalm itself, he wants others, first of all, to know the grief and the sorrow that are suffered by those who transgress God's law. Please don't do it. Look at what it has done to me. He wants them to understand the justice of God. It, it stems from his hatred of sin, sin that is destructive, sin that corrupts even the good things that God gives us. He says, don't do it. Listen to what God tells you, and you will find that that law is there for a reason. It is there to teach us what is good in life. And he wants to teach them, of course, the joyous relief that comes when sins are confessed, because he can, as I can as a minister of the gospel, I can assure anyone who puts their trust in Christ that he is the righteous one whose righteousness is imputed to us. He will never turn any of us away. You ask, he gives. That is the way that works. And that is the only way it is going to work. 
He wants to tell all who will hear his praise for God's grace. That is that 14th and 15th verses. Every repentant sinner knows what Paul did. You remember how Paul described himself? Not, not as the great and godly apostle of God. He starts talking about sinners and he says, I'm the chief. I believe that every child of God who has come to know him as Savior has experienced that. You see, I don't know people, what their heart is like on the inside. But unfortunately, I know me. I know what I am like. I know where my mind goes sometimes. And and thus, as a result, I I know how unworthy I am. Like Paul, I, I have known myself to be the worst of sinners, but have also known the great grace of God that allows me to be called a saint, a child of God, a part of God's own inheritance. That's how much he thinks of us. That is what comes to us when we recognize our utter spiritual bankruptcy, the the realization that we have nothing to offer God. Because you see, as strange as it sounds to us when we hear it, it is nevertheless true. The perfectly holy God loves no one any more than he does the broken-hearted sinner who recognizes just what his life is like apart from God. That's the one he loves. He didn't come to save the righteous, those who think that they've done enough. He says, I've come to save sinners. Well, when they come into the church, I know sometimes they think of church people as self-righteous. They think of us as people who feel that we're above others. It is only because they don't understand our faith. We know better, do we not? We are not the self-righteous people. That would be what condemns us. We know that Christ is the righteous one, and that's what brings salvation. David says we can rest assured that God will never despise or turn away any who offer that broken heart to him. And finally, there in the 18th and 19th verses, where does he conclude this matter of personal confession, this this recognition that, that he is a sinner deserving God's condemnation? Well, he turns his eyes to the people of God. By thy favor, do good to Zion. Who is Zion? Your members. Your name is signed in blood on the rolls that tell who the inhabitants of Zion are going to be. We have here the natural expression of love for God's people that belongs to every penitent sinner. The man who says he loves God but doesn't want anything to do with the church, that is the man who is lying to himself. You can't do that. Because it is natural for us to want to be around the fellowship of the saints. Having discovered God's grace in our own lives, we will want to see that that grace is extended to all of God's people. This desire is expressed in a desire to see that God would bless them with comfort and prosperity and peace. Zion built up so that they will be ready to take on the world for lack of a better expression. Take it on because they know in the might of the Almighty God they can do whatever they've been called to do in this life. 
A part of the desire for God's people to be blessed comes, of course, not just that Christians would have a comfortable life. That, to some extent, is, of course, true. But the real desire was that God would be honored and recognized. You, you build up the walls of Jerusalem, then you will delight in righteous sacrifices. Of course, our sacrifice, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, is our own bodies. We give ourselves to do God's will. But the point is, they will give themselves to worship. And what is worship other than glorifying God? Isn't that why we're here today? We have come to honor the one who has taken us into his family. If Zion prospered and her walls were built up, then the people would have that opportunity to worship God in the fashion he had called them to. You see, sin, perhaps especially in a man like David, who was supposed to be king of all God's people, sin can destroy the fellowship of the saints. I don't know of any other reason the church is split. It is because the sin in our lives, well, it, it takes root in our hearts, but it doesn't stop there. Unfortunately, it flows out into the congregation as a whole. How do you fix that? Well, there is a sense in which you don't. God does. God does it. He fixes our hearts when we come repentantly and ask for his grace and he fixes it, and the church thereby is edified. Sin is sadly a part of living in a fallen world. In contradiction of some Wesleyan doctrine, uh, if you're expecting perfection in this life, I, I can only say I, I, I wish that could be true, but it's not. In this life, in this fallen world, with our yet corrupted natures being renewed in the image of Christ, but not there yet. In this fallen world, we will continue to sin. But you know what the marvelous thing about sin is in Christians? Actually, in even unbelievers. You know what? God can take sin like David's with Uriah and Bathsheba and give us the 51st Psalm that comforts the people with of God with the knowledge, yes, even I can be saved. Yes, even I can find renewal. There is something that all of us on a daily basis can give glory to God for. He has changed us, and you can't become unchanged. You cannot have your child of God's status ever revoked because what Christ did once for all remains your gift for all eternity. May we bow in prayer. Our Father, it is a difficult thing for us to recognize that we are going to live with a fight against the sin within ourselves as much as with the world to the end of our days. And yet, how good it is to know that David, this murderer, this adulterer, is called a man after God's own heart. And it wasn't David's doing. It was your doing. Cleanse us today, right now. Cleanse us and our hearts 
that we may love you, that we may praise you, and that we may, loving God's people, do what we can to build them up in the knowledge of your glory and your grace. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. For our closing hymn, we'll join David in verse 14 and 15, singing joyfully of God's righteousness and uttering praise with our lips. I'm going to throw you another curve. I want to sing from 420 of the Trinity instead of the hymns of grace in light of the sermon. It just kind of works out (laughs) that Christ is our refuge. Number 420 in the Trinity. Shall we stand, please?